Our scripture today comes from the book of Mark, chapter 10, verses 46 to 52. They came to Jericho. As he and his disciples and a large crowd were leaving Jericho, Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus, a blind beggar, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to shout out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many sternly ordered him to be quiet, but he cried out even more loudly, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stood still and he said, call him here. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. So throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and he came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? The blind man said to him, my teacher, let me see again. Jesus said to him, go, your faith has made you well. Immediately he regained his sight and followed him on the way. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning and I pray that you are working in our lives even now, that you pour out your word, your spirit upon us, that you speak through me and that you move us closer to you. In Christ's name, amen. So for the last few years, I've had the distinguished, honored title of Uncle Mike to two people in my life, to my niece, Bianca, and to my nephew, Bryson. Now, I haven't gotten to meet my niece yet because of COVID, and so I'm looking forward to that. But I'll tell you, my nephew, Bryson, is quite a handful. He's got a lot of personality. He is um, growing up to be a very strange personal person, um, but he definitely is having a different childhood than I ever did. So my sister and and her husband are living in Lancaster area. They love to hunt. They love the outdoors. That is not me whatsoever. And so being the cool uncle, I have to go along with anything my nephew says, and that includes playing a game called the hunter and the deer, which is when he gets to be the hunter and I'm a deer. Now, personally, I think this is barbaric but I also have to be the cool uncle. And so you just kind of co-sign whatever a small child says. And as a side note, I think it's interesting that like in any other stage of life, if we change who we are to get people to like us, it's totally unacceptable, but all of us will do anything to have little kids think we're cool. It's like a different echelon of compliment. And so that's what I do. I, I play hunter and the deer with my nephew. But I laugh with my sister all the time because I tell her, and I was very forthcoming about this when he was born, I like him way more now as a three-year-old than I ever did when he was born. Because all the babies can do is just kind of cry or stare or drool or barf. Or, you know, Usually it's not a good scenario, especially if you pick up the baby and then it starts crying. Now you think it's your fault. And, It's just an ongoing stressor, right? Especially if you've never had kids, which I haven't. But I laugh with her because I I like Bryson way more now. You know, he can string some words together, ball, juice, Uncle Mike, hunter, deer. And so we can communicate. It's a really enjoyable thing. I'm like, wow, this guy is really smart, smarter than me. Um, And so that's part of the relationship that I have with my nephew now. 
But I think everyone at one point or another, whether you've had a baby or you've not had a baby, um, you know what it's like when there's a crying baby that's been put into your area. And I, I think there's always that moment, even for parents that are veterans, where a baby's just screaming and you're doing everything you can and it's still not fixing it. And there's a moment, and maybe some of you have done this, um, I'm not pointing fingers, but when you want to scream back, like, what do you want? Right? Like, the baby's crying, and you want to help the baby, but the baby doesn't know how to tell you what it wants, and you don't know how to help the baby, and so you're just there, exhausted. And you want to cry, too. And you probably do. And that's the human life. That's just what life becomes, right? So when I read this story in Mark, you know, I, I say the same thing every time I get up here to preach. We have to put ourselves into the story, right? But this is one of those stories that just truly amazes me because I've read the Bible plenty of times and I'd swear before last year I'd never read this story. I know I must have, but the Bible's weird that way. Things just hit you in different ways at different seasons of life. And so when I read this story about Bartimaeus last year and kind of got hit with this like triple-decker from God where I, I was reading it one night with um, this uh, group of friends and I swear I'd never heard it. I'm like, this is really impressive. This is really powerful. Cool. Went home, went to bed. The next day I pulled out this old devotional book and I was like, I'm going to do my devotions. And I started reading and what was the story that day? This one. And I was like, oh, so cool coincidence. I don't think God likes that word that much, but I'm like, all right, cool, devotional. So then the next day I'm reading a book because I'm so smart. And I'm reading this book about God's community, God's intention for um, Christian community, for what we're called to be, and what is the story but this passage from Mark 10. So then I'm feeling really awkward, because if you know anything about the New Testament, there's a lot of situations where things come in threes, like Peter's getting told things in threes, so I'm like, oh no, what's God trying to tell me? Because this story, as great as it is, is not necessarily the most impressive miracle that Jesus has performed. And, and that might sound bad to rank miracles, but to me, like walking on water is like, that's kind of crazy, right? Like you see someone walking on water that's like... Okay, or feeding the 5,000, like did they see the food multiply? Or I think sometimes we read the miracles in scripture and we skim over them like, oh, there's Jesus doing another miracle. But we need to address like the significance of what's occurring. But when it comes to healing the blind, this isn't even the weirdest one. Jesus in, in John's gospel heals a blind person by putting his spit in his eyes. Like, I, why didn't he do that here? I don't know. And so as I'm reflecting on this passage in this scripture, I'm, I'm trying to understand, like, what is the deal with Bartimaeus? Um, and we're told it's the son of Timaeus, you know, as if we know who that is. I don't. But I think that the focal point of, of this episode, this brief little moment at the end of this chapter in Mark, is not necessarily about the healing, but it's about this interaction between Jesus and Bartimaeus, where Jesus humanizes this person who's been forgotten by society and speaks to him. And he asks the simplest question, what do you want me to do for you? Bartimaeus was a blind beggar 
sitting on the side of the road who knows how long, from the path from Jericho to Jerusalem, very high trafficked area. He's sitting there waiting for who knows what, and he hears a fuss and finds out that it's Jesus of Nazareth that's coming. And he thinks this is his moment to say he wants to see again. Now, when I first was reintroduced to this scripture last year, the person that was reading it said, let's all close our eyes and imagine Jesus sitting in front of us, asking each of us, what do you want me to do for you? Now, I was a mess after this. After three days of going through this passage, I was tired of having this question asked because I think there's a a real indescribable feeling we all go through when things aren't good, where we don't necessarily know what's going wrong, but we know things aren't right. We know that things are short of good, but we don't know how to to point to them. We don't know how to name it and address it and move past it. And so sometimes we become my nephew as a one-year-old crying his eyes out over who knows what. We're, We're hurt, we are tired, we're struggling, but we don't even know how to put it into words to communicate those things to one another, let alone to God. And so when that question kept getting asked to me, what do you want me to do for you? I I don't know what I want you to do for me. I know that I don't feel great. And yet Jesus asks this question. And there's an interesting dynamic to it, right? Jesus, the Son of God, asks what do you want me to do for you? And for a moment, you know, you probably think to yourself, shouldn't you know better than me? You're Jesus, right? And and there's this interesting dynamic uh, of, of we don't necessarily pray and name our desires and our needs. And then we, we kind of keep this, this crutch where we go, well, we don't need to because God already knows what's in our heart. So we don't need to ask because he already knows. But this is a really skillful, ingenious way for us to hide our cynicism about prayer without actually being vulnerable in that process. The process of asking God anything is what changes us along the way. The process of of trusting God with your heart's deepest desires and your heart's deepest hurts changes you. And so when we go to God in prayer, we have to be honest with ourselves and with our God about where we are and where we wish we were and what we wish was happening. Bartimaeus was a blind man left out by society sitting on the side of the road. How many days and months and years did this man wait for something better to come along? So maybe you're not Bartimaeus. Maybe you're not dealing with blindness this morning. Maybe you're not sitting on the side of a road near Jericho. But all of us know what it's like to have an ailment in our lives, a a hurt, a struggle, a pain that we've dealt with for so long that we've kind of just accepted it as reality, as if this is just how it is now. 
Things don't get better from here. This is just something I have to live with. And I wonder what is the internal clock for us where we decide something is no longer worth lifting up in prayer? What is the statute of limitations on how long we trust God with our deepest desire? Or we slip into cynicism and think, well, what's the point in asking anymore? He didn't do anything yet. He won't do anything moving forward. It's a tough dynamic, certainly, because the process of asking is not easy. Uh, There's nothing easy about putting yourself out there in any kind of situation. Uh, There's a vulnerability. You're, You're showing your truest self, and you're opening yourself up to the possibility of hurt. But the reality is, pain is real. The pains we live with are real. The pains that we encounter in life, they cannot be reduced to just things that you just need to get over. They have to be addressed. But at some point, you might just give up asking about them. And what what are those things, right? And, And maybe those are things that we've all given into. Maybe we've given up praying about the end of COVID. Maybe we've given up praying about the relationship that continues to fail. Maybe we've given up praying about online Zoom school. Maybe we've given up praying about politics or bigotry or racism or homelessness. What what are the things that we know we should be asking for and yet we're so tired of asking, we've just stopped? Have we become cynical? I've heard it said that cynicism is fear masking itself as confidence. Because if you can pretend like you already know how things are going to go, then you can put on a good face, right? But in prayer, in asking, in naming those desires, we're opening ourselves up to something else entirely. Now, the important part of this is not that we treat Jesus like a genie. Certainly that is not our relationship with God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. That's not the expectation as if you just ask and anything's given to you. And yet Jesus made a pretty big deal about asking, about seeking, about knocking at the door, about having the faith of a mustard seed. And so there's got to be some dynamic that we're missing in this process of telling God our heart's deepest desires, even the ones we think to be pretty impossible. And what Jesus does in this story is he humanizes this man, Bartimaeus, by saying, what do you want me to do for you? When the crowd was saying, look, man, be quiet. You're being too loud. He keeps crying out, and Jesus tells him to come here. The people then change their tone. Hey, take heart, man. He's calling you. Your number's up. Bartimaeus goes, and he takes advantage of the opportunity because he's heard of this this person, Jesus of Nazareth, and he goes and he asks for his sight again. What do you want me to do for you? Teacher, let me see again. What do you want Jesus to do for you? And so when we think about this question, and we think about what prayer is and what it is not, and how that process changes us, we have to understand that in asking, there's a number of things happening. One, 
to ask God anything is an act of faith, right? We are believing there is a God. We are believing he is listening. We're believing that perhaps he'll respond. It's also an act of hope. We are hoping for something. We want something. And we are communicating that to God. And sometimes if we don't express those things, they build up the tension in us for so long, we experience that hurt without knowing how to name it. But then there's also this act of trust, that you are trusting God with the deepest want you have. Because when we keep those things internal, when we refuse to name the things in our lives to our Lord, we are not offering our whole selves We're living fragmented lives. We're giving him what we think he wants, and we're keeping the rest over here. But we in the church, the body of Christ, are called to live in community together and also to talk with our God. Prayer is not a a secondary action in the life of faith. It's something that is fundamental to who we are. And so when we think about the question Jesus is asking, what do you want me to do for you? It's a deeply personal question. He's asking it to one person on the side of the road. I wonder which side of which road each of us this morning are on. But fundamentally for me, I can only speak for myself, the the reason I stop asking for my mom to be healed of her illness for my sister to get home safely, for all of the numbers of things I could be praying for that I just give up asking about is because I'm scared about this what if question. Well, what if I ask and he doesn't do what I want? What if I ask and he doesn't take care of you or them or us? What do I have to say about my God then? It's important stuff. And internally, I think we, we shy away from this question, but God is big enough to bear our questions and our doubts. The closest people to Jesus lost their faith in the, in the Gospels. It's okay if we ask these questions, but we have to be willing to face the answers. Jesus himself taught us to pray. We say this prayer every week, the Lord's Prayer. And yet we also see some other instances of Jesus praying in the New Testament. We see Jesus the night on which he was betrayed in the garden, praying to God, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But not my will, let your will be done. Jesus lifted up his heart's deepest desire in that moment, and yet it was not answered the way he had hoped. But Jesus taught us how to pray. So something about the process of honestly presenting ourselves to God in all of who we are, in all of our brokenness, all of our doubts, all of our concerns, something in that process changes us. Because if we're to be in an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ, we cannot hold back any corner of our lives. Jesus, all throughout the Gospels, are pointing to the lowest of society as the examples of faith, the examples of how to live. And Bartimaeus is, is one of those people. 
The church is built upon prayer in in times of prosperity throughout history, in times of struggle and persecution, enslavement. Prayer is fundamental to who we are as the people of God. It's built into our liturgy. We've, We've prayed at least four or five times this morning already. We pray to confess. We pray to praise and worship. We pray to make our requests known to God. We pray for the world. We pray for each other. But have you ever noticed it's really easy, it's way easier to ask someone how to pray for them, but rather than to actually pray for them? Like, oh yeah, I'll pray for you. And then you don't, rather than praying in that moment. Or perhaps even how easy it is to tell someone you'll pray for their stuff, but you can't name your own stuff. Because it's vulnerable to admit that it's not all okay. And so I I talked to quite a few of our students here at the church, some of our teens, some of our college students, and I, I said, hey, just on a whim, if Jesus was sitting in front of you and asked you, what do you want me to do for you? What would you say? And I, I really want to share with you all what some of our, our students said. I want joy. I want to stop feeling like I'm just surviving. I want to be assured that we can make it through these times together. I want God to guide and fulfill my life. I want God to get me past my own pride so I can do what's best for the people around me. Man, I want some mental clarity. I'm not even sure what I want from God right now, but I want to feel less numb. I wish I was content. I want this pandemic to end. This is the most chaotic time in my life. I want peace. I feel like asking anything of God is selfish or needy, but I guess I want him to provide me the strength to engage with those people I consider other. I just want to feel his presence. These are the prayers of some of our teens, some of our college students, the members of Swickley Presbyterian Church, the members of the body of Christ, These are our prayers. Prayer changes us. But there's also this other reality that sometimes maybe you feel like you don't have the faith, hope, and trust to lift those things up anymore. Maybe this day you don't have enough faith to believe that naming your prayer will do anything. Okay. That's part of life. That's part of the experience. But what I'll tell you is that the most important reminder in all of this is that we were never designed to be in isolation. We were never designed to be alone. We are created in the image of God to be in community with God and with one another. Our faith is bigger than ourselves. And this is a theme that we come back to in this church a lot because it's the bedrock of what we believe, that our faith is not about individuals, but we acknowledge that we are individuals, but our faith is millennia old, and it can bear the pains and the hurts and the questions and the doubts of any one of us, because it's bigger than us. 
Bartimaeus was a man on the side of the road at his lowest moment, living with an ailment he thought would never get better, when finally someone said, take heart, he's calling you. And he named his desires. The late Rachel Halda Evans once said that um, she, she loved going to a liturgical church. She hated everything about it, but she loved it. Because when she went to this liturgical church that she resented for so long, she really didn't like the music. They didn't have any guitars or anything, not really her style. She didn't really like the preaching. Um, the preaching wasn't really good. It was an old, old, old person preaching. Not that they can't preach well, just retelling her story. But she said the liturgy became the most fundamental part of what she believed. Because on the days when she felt like she had nothing left to give God, the days when she felt like she couldn't sing the songs, couldn't pray the prayers, and couldn't recite the creed, the people around her did it for her, on her behalf. That the community of believers lifted up the congregation and the community and the world in prayer for the people that didn't have the strength or faith to pray themselves. And so I invite you, if you are at that place where you feel like you don't have any more prayers to give, that you've, you've prayed too many times and the needs haven't been met and you don't know how to keep asking, keep asking. Keep seeking his face. Keep lifting up your heart's deepest desires because at the end of the day, the asking is what changes us. God is present. God knows. He's with us. And in the words of C.S. Lewis, the only answer we can give to why he's not answering the way you'd like is that apparently he's got something else in mind. Faith and hope and trust are the only things that really bridge that gap. And yet, that's what we're called to. And so wherever you find yourself this morning, if you're a Bartimaeus that's ready to jump up and ask to see again, or if you're still on the side of the road, know that this community is a place where we can bear that together. Faith is bigger than the individuals. So take heart because he is calling to you. Are you listening? Can you hear him? Amen.